0: Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 6, beginning of verse 10. Uh, We talked about last week how we're going to spend quite a few uh, sermons in this text, and uh, we're not going to rush our way through it. So this morning we're going to look at the verse 13 or excuse me to verse 12 he says finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers and against authorities against cosmic powers over this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Father, help us believe what your word tells us. Father, I pray that we would be wise with the life that you've given us, with the Spirit that You've put within us, Father, that we would walk with Him. The Word that You've given us, Father, that we would have faith in it. The brothers and sisters that You put in our life, that we would exhort one, and one another every day as long as it's called today. Father, that we may remain faithful against the devil's schemes. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we look at a text like this, I think it's important that we come at it from a very practical sense. So, a question that I don't think... uh, I think we all know the answer... We ought to give to it, but how should we start our day? What would be the best way you could start your day? Every Christian knows the answer is supposed to be with prayer and getting in God's Word. If you could set yourself the perfect day for the best spiritual growth, we all know that's what we would what we're supposed to say. And if you ask the question, well, why do that? Someone might answer so that we can learn more about God, so that we could love God more. And that would be a good answer. Someone else might say, well, it's important that we get in God's Word because we'll reap what we sow. And if we sow to the Spirit, we'll from the Spirit reap eternal life. And if we sow to the flesh, we will from the flesh reap corruption. And that would be a good answer. I don't know that we would get all those good answers. I think many Christians would just say, that's just what you're supposed to do. That's what good people do. But this text teaches us that we should get into God's Word and that we should pray because we are in a battle against cosmic powers, against rulers and authorities, intelligences that are deceptive, totally evil, supernatural, that seek our destruction. What the demons want of my life is unfruitfulness. If they can't take my salvation from me, they want me unfruitful. That's why in Ephesians 5.11, Paul says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead, Expose them. John Stott says a thorough knowledge of the enemy and a healthy respect for his prowess are necessary, uh, are a necessary uh, preliminary to victory in war. If if anyone's going to win a war, they must first understand their enemy, they must know what their enemy's good at. They must know how powerful that enemy is. Stott goes on to say, similarly, if we underestimate our spiritual enemy, we shall see no need for God's armor. We shall go out to the battle unarmed, with no weapons, but our own puny strength, and we shall quickly and ignominiously be defeated." I think many Christians do that. They don't put on the armor of God. They don't start their day that way. They've forgotten who the enemy is. Because Christ has given the the fatal blow to Satan when he died on the cross, it's as if they assume Satan and his demons are already in hell. That they're no longer attacking us. Because the punishment for sin has been accomplished in the cross, Christians assume that the present power of sin in their lives must have been defeated as well. But that's not true yet. We have an enemy, and the enemy is real. In Luke 22 and verse 31, remember Simon Peter If you were going to say, who's the disciple that is ready for battle more than any other disciple? Who's the one that pulled the sword and was ready to fight for Christ? And yet we read this. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And it's as if Peter didn't hear what he said. Because here's what Peter says. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus just said, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. He's demanded to have you, but I have prayed for you. Peter should have said, Well, good thing you prayed for me, because if you didn't pray for me, I would deny you forever. But Peter doesn't say that. What Peter says is, I am I will be strong. I'll go with you to death. And what does Jesus say to him? Jesus said, I tell you, Peter the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. Now the reason why Peter's denials weren't ultimate denials is not because Peter had such strong faith in and of himself, but it's because Jesus Christ prayed for Peter as Satan demanded to sift him like wheat. And I think we can be as foolish as Peter was as he takes the enemy lightly. So here's what we're going to do. Here's how uh, the plan to work through these verses. Now, really, there's two main commands in verses 10 and 11. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Alright, you see that? And then this is what that would look like. Verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God. He's going to repeat that in verse 13 where he's going to say, take up the armor. But Paul is speaking to Christians who have the Holy Spirit living inside them. They're saved. And yet, they're not equipped for the battle. It wasn't like a miracle happened the moment they got saved where automatically they're just going to wake up in the morning and fight the fight of faith. But they're called to take initiative, to find their strength in the Lord and not in themselves, to put on the armor of God through the Word of God in prayer. So we're going to spend the majority of our time, probably six or seven sermons, unpacking that command as we unpack the armor of God. But the next couple of weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the reason for that command. And the reason he gives for that command is because of who our enemy is. Look at what he says. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. That's why he says be strong in the Lord in the strength of His might because it's laughable how easy Peter can be defeated, how easy we can be defeated in our own strength. And so, as you look at your notes, what you're going to find is that we're not going to get through all these notes. We're, We're basically going to look at the command, be strong in the Lord, knowing the enemy well. We're going to begin to look at the enemy. We're really only going to touch the surface that our enemy is supernatural. We'll spend next week, in the following uh, weeks after that, taking a more topical look at Satan and his demons so we can understand how our enemy is presented to us uh, in the Word of God. Now, I want to give a word of balance at the front end of this. Whenever you take on a study like of Satan and his demons, we want to do it in a way that is balanced. Often, with just about any truth, there will be ditches on both sides of of that truth. You can really look at any truth God puts forth in the Bible, and you could see ditches which have something of the truth, but miss the balance of what the Scripture says about it. The, studies of, the study of angels and demons is not without exception uh, to that rule. We've all known people who have been obsessed with certain topics in the Scriptures. People can become so unbalanced in studying a certain topic that a person can wonder, do they even love Jesus? Do they even remember what the Gospel is? They can become so enamored with a certain topic, become so unbalanced, even everything they're saying within that topic can be maybe right, but they can not hold it in the balance the Scripture gives it to us. Uh There is a form of Christianity that is obsessed with angels and demons. They read everything through the lens of the spiritual. Uh, These folks, in a sense, can blame the devil for everything. The devil can't cause anyone to sin. The devil tempts people to sin of their own volition. The devil deceives people to sin sin of their own volition. People can be so amazed at the spiritual realm that they actually are tempted to worship angels and demons. In fact, this was a problem when Paul was writing his letters. When he wrote to the Colossian church at Colossae, he says in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. He says, be careful. Many of you are believing philosophies of demons. Human philosophies on the one perspective that are actually being carried along by these elemental spirits. Then he says in Verse 18 of Colossians chapter 2, he says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, that's the denial of your body of physical things, and worship of angels. Let no one disqualify you with the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you've died to the elements, the spirits of the world, why are you still living in them? So the idea is, false teachers have come in and said, you need to worship these spirits and give visions from these angels and get this extra knowledge. And Paul's making an argument that The fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you have Jesus Christ, if all the treasures of wisdom are bound up in Him, then you don't need extra wisdom from angels and demons and visions. But they were obsessed with them. This is a culture obsessed with them, And so we can think of a form of Christianity in our day, that can be imbalanced. They can talk all about angels and demons all the time and they've taken their eyes off the head, Christ. There are other groups of Christians who may give mental assent to the reality of the spiritual world around them, but in reality they live and think as though everything is just material. And so the question is, how can someone stay on the road and not slide into the ditch on either side? You know, if I was guessing, as your pastor and shepherd who seeks to understand and know you, my guess would be, if you were in a ditch, you might be in the ditch that pretends as though, or you practically live your life as though We don't live in a spiritual world. That there isn't a real enemy, a lion, a lion that is seeking to devour us. If I had to guess, that might be the ditch we would be in. Someone might say, how can you stay on the road? Here's the way you stay on the road. You look at what God says about any topic, in light of of what God says in the whole Scripture. We're always looking at individual texts, but not just zooming in on them and forgetting about everything else God has said. That's how you stay on the road and stay out of the ditch. Now, if you want to see a terrible collision, Take two Christians that are both sliding across the center line to opposite ditches and watch them get in a discussion. Just turn on social media, Christian social media. You'll see this happen all the time. Usually two people in two ditches hitting head on, and you'll see something ugly. That's common. It's one thing when someone's in a ditch with people all going into the same ditch, It really gets ugly in Christianity when people aren't balanced in what the scripture says about any topic. So we want to be careful. I just want to give that word a warning as we jump into this. But I have to say that as I've been studying this the last few months, I have to admit that I haven't quite thought about the reality of the Christian life in regards to the enemy in the way that Paul presents it. I was shortchanging the enemy. The Bible tells me that I ought to be more concerned about the devil's schemes than I was thinking of. Now, I'm not to fear him in Christ I think Paul would say you better fear Him outside of Christ. If you go on it by yourself, alone, not in prayer, not in the Word, then Satan will wreak havoc in your life as you become deceived by Him. You know, as we just look at Ephesians, it's in every chapter of Ephesians. Paul's worldview of this world is in every chapter. Chapter 1, verse 19. He wants us to know the immeasurable greatness of Christ's power towards us who believe. According to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in heavenly places. And then He says, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Right there he's saying, I want you to know Christ's power, His power is even greater than the spiritual principalities and powers and authorities, which the Ephesian church understood that. And then in chapter 2 he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. If You want to understand the world, you need to understand that Satan is the god of this world. He is the one in control of this world system. Now I'm not saying Christ is not sovereign, that God is not sovereign, for the devil is God's devil, but right now, Satan and his demons are how we make sense of this present evil age that Paul says we're living in. That every unbeliever is being controlled by a spirit that is the spirit of the devil. Do you realize that? There's not Christians, then neutral seekers, then non-believers, according to a biblical worldview. There's, the, there's those people whose actions are being manipulated by demonic forces. In Ephesians 3.10, he says, uh, speaking of the Gospel, that this mystery revealed, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now, might now be made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. See, when Paul's thinking about the gospel, he's thinking about these powerful rulers and authorities being defeated by one more powerful. In chapter 4, verse 25, he says, Having put away falsehood, let, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another, If we were to speak lies, we'd be like the devil, right? And then he says this he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Don't go to sleep with bitterness in your heart, with anger in your heart. For you'd give opportunity to the devil. See, I wonder, as Americans read Ephesians, if they even see any of this until they get to chapter 6. Now, you just have to be blind not to see it. I guess in chapter 2, they probably see it some. Chapter 5, verse 15, he says, Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. He says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. He's saying, don't get drunk, because then you'll lose your faculties. It's like rolling out the red carpet for demonic attack. Be filled with the Spirit. Those in Ephesus would have surely been aware of the supernatural world. They wouldn't have our problems that we have in America today where we tend to live as though this foe isn't still here seeking our destruction. How do I know they would know? In Acts 19, we see Paul come into Ephesus. We'll pick up reading in verse 11 of Acts 19. Here's what we read. I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. So get the picture. Jewish exorcists trying to, they're not saved. They don't believe in Jesus, savingly. But they see that when Paul invokes Jesus' name, it works. Here's what happened. Seven sons of Sceva, Jewish high priests named Sceva, or this way, he said, so here's what they said, I adjure you by uh, the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, uh, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Skeva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, all right, the evil spirit using the faculties of this demon possessed man, and they answered him. And said, Jesus, I know, Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit, who was the evil spirit, leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So get the picture. One man overpowered seven men, tearing their clothes off, wounding them, and hurting them. And verse 17 says, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. Both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. So now we find out what they were doing. Now listen to this. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver so that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. All that to say, those in Ephesus knew that the spiritual battle was real. They would have been quite aware of the reality of the spiritual world. In fact, That was their practice. They knew that they could gain advantages by speaking to the dead or invoking demons to give them information and function in the world. That's what they were doing. And so all that to say that As we look at verse 12, as as we consider verse 12, Paul wants us to understand who our enemy is. He wants us to be strong in the Lord, knowing the enemy well. He says in verse 12, "...for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness." Against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Doesn't this explain life? You ever feel like life is hard? You ever feel like people are hard? Can I get an amen? Right? People are hard. You ever feel like your heart is hard? you ever feel like you're wrestling over this or that? You're wrestling over this circumstance or that circumstance with this person or that person? It's like you have this wrestling turmoil within you, maybe mounts up in anxiety or fear. anyone relate to that? How do you think about that? Here's what people would say in the world, it's just life, man. Just life, you know, life is difficult, or life is a swear word, right? That's what people talk about. Man, it's just the way it is. Here's my question. If that's so, why does it seem so wrong? If this is just the way it is, if this is just so normal, and it's been this way forever, why hasn't anyone just accepted it as normal? Why doesn't everyone just recalibrate and instead of saying life's difficult or life's hard or life is a swear word, why don't they just say it's normal? It's because they can't deny that something is terribly wrong in the difficulties that they see in this world. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Something has gone wrong terribly wrong. Everybody senses it. Yeah, they'll say that's just life, but how do they say that? They say that with bitterness in their heart. They're not satisfied with that. Something has gone wrong. Otherwise, how could we understand the news? If there isn't a battle against evil, how do you understand the news stations? You tell me. How can you make sense of it without the presence of a battle between good and evil? It's everywhere, it's how we teach our children to write good stories. We can't even imagine a story without it. I looked this up, I'm not claiming to be great at literature. But I googled, what are the basic building blocks of a story? And I read a whole bunch of different ones. But here's one thing I read. The building blocks of any great story has setting, conflict, really. It has conflict, character, dialogue, theme, plot, climax. There's a protagonist and an antagonist. Imagine a story without conflict. Without evil. That's all we know is living in a world like this. The battle is present everywhere around us. Do you know why you have relational conflict? Do you know? This text tells you. I don't know if you believe it. I don't know if you buy it. But this text tells us why we have relational conflict. If I ask two people that are not getting along with each other, I say, what's the problem? What do you think the most common response is? Yep. There's the problem. You want to know why there's conflict? That person right there. They're the problem, right? But maybe there's a little more spiritual discernment and humility. And the person says, well, I know I can't point over there, so the reason why there's relational conflict is because my heart is bad. My heart is evil. Well, I got a question to that. Why is that? So then let's do theology. Why is my heart evil? Well, because Adam's heart was evil, and... I was born from Adam. Okay, so why was his heart evil? Genesis 3, one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say? So if you want to follow the questions all the way back, you end up with the serpent in the garden. Genesis 3.13, the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And she was right. The serpent did deceive her. And she ate of her own volition. She was tempted, she was deceived, and then she sinned. And she's accountable. And then her marriage became broken immediately. And if you were to ask Eve, I would argue, to, the last, to her dying day, if someone said, why is marriage so difficult? I don't think she's going to point it at him, and I don't think she's going to say, because my heart's bad. I think what she's going to start this story by saying is, a serpent. Why do you have a broken marriage, Eve? Well, let me tell you where it all began. Yes, she's culpable, but it didn't start with her. So right away in the garden, there's supernatural evil seeking to take over the people created in the image of God. This is why A person, it's so important to understand this, a person doesn't live their life according to reality. A person lives their life according to perceived reality, which is probably why if you struggle to get into the Word in the morning and you struggle to pray in the morning, it's because you're not living your life according to reality. Your perception of reality is something else. Your perception is, is I I got this today. You see that? The Bible is what gives us reality. It's a text like this that rightly orients us. So though it is true ever since the fall that relationships with one another have been broken, that's not the whole picture. Wherever we see broken relationships, fighting and quarreling, we must know that we don't see the true nature of what's going on totally. Because behind that fight, there's a spiritual battle going on. It's been true from the first fight in history to every fight since. You realize that? So much so that if you had two people full of the Spirit of God fighting the fight of faith in the power of God, in the strength that He provides with the armor of God on, guess what you're not going to be watching? You're not going to be watching a fight. And you're not going to be watching a quarrel. So when you wonder why your relationships struggle, when you wonder why there's conflict in your marriage and with your children, do you understand what kind of battle you're in? Do your actions prove you, be- you believe you're in that battle? Or do you find yourself so often fighting in your own strength? John Stott says, in other words, our struggle is not with human beings. Our struggle is not with human beings. you believe that? Do you actually believe that? Your struggle is not with human beings, but with cosmic intelligences, cosmic powers. Our enemies are not human. Here's what Stott says. In other words, our struggles not with human beings, but with cosmic intelligences. Our enemies are not human, but demonic. So according to this text, the spiritual battle is where the wrestling match takes place. Yeah, there's human beings fighting, that's for sure. But that's not the main event. That's not the real battle. That's people who are being deceived by the ones who blind people's minds, distracts them from pure devotion to Christ. See, just because you're given the Spirit doesn't mean you can't quench the Spirit. Just because you're given the Word of God doesn't mean you can't neglect the Word of God. Just because you're given brothers and sisters in Christ doesn't mean that you can keep yourself from your brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, you have to put the armor of God on. You need to take it up. And it's a daily battle. It's a daily choice. So the spiritual battle is actually where all relational conflict You want to make sense of it. You have to see it from there. Yes, there's a fallen heart. But there's also a fallen heart that has the Spirit of God in them. It has the Word of God, right? Ephesians 4.26, listen to this. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. So when you're fighting with someone, when you're bitter towards another person, whether it's your enemy or whether it's your brother or sister in Christ, when you go to bed angry, Paul says, don't do it because you're giving the devil a foothold. you realize that? You see, you think you're you're getting back at them. You're justified in your bitterness and in your anger. When all the while, Paul says, you're giving a foothold to the devil when you do that. That's why in 2 Corinthians 2.10... In regards to forgiveness, uh, a man who created great sin in the Corinthian church that is now repented, here's what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 2.10. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And Then he says this, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. Here's what he says. When a man in the church committed heinous sin and then repents, and the church forgave them, and Paul forgave him, he said, we weren't outwitted. We understand Satan's designs. And what he's saying is, we would have been outwitted, If there would have been unforgiveness and disunity in the body after someone's repented. Someone says, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what we should do with this guy. Well, Satan wins. Because where Christ is put on display is in the love and unity and forgiveness that happens within the body of Christ. But you see that? That situation could happen here and everyone could see it from a mere physical mindset. This is what he did. It was really bad. I don't know if we should forgive him. I don't know if we should do it. Just a human thing. Where What's Paul thinking? Paul's saying we're not ignorant of Satan's design. We're not falling into that trap. So let me just end with this. Next week we'll go through these characteristics of the enemy. His deceptiveness. The Bible says the devil's scheming against us. We're going to look at his power. They're described as authorities and rulers and cosmic powers and spiritual forces. Spiritual forces of evil. The enemy is evil beyond what we can imagine. And then we're going to we begin to look at this week how he's Supernatural. Well, let's look at Christ's victory. Let's end that way, alright? Colossians 2, we see this battle. Beginning in verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So there's the demonic attack. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. Verse 11, he says, In Him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So here's here's how you need to read these last verses here. Here's how we're going to end it. What we have to see is that The demonic forces must have wondered if they didn't win at the death of Christ. There's an argument over whether they knew or not. As Calvin says, God defeated Satan with Satan. Right? So, So Satan destroyed himself in the death of Christ. We see that. Here we read about it. In verse 11 he says, "...in him..." You also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism. There's Christ's death. There's our death, in which we were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you who are dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Having canceling, or by canceling the debt, the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set aside nailing it to the cross. Verse fifteen says this: He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Here's what I want you to see: When Jesus died on the cross, and maybe looked like apparent victory for the demonic realm. Victory was just sealed for Christ. Sins were forgiven. Death was defeated. Right? What we read is he disarmed the rulers and authorities, which means he took their armor off. He disarmed the enemy's armor. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It's as if Christ is on this victory parade and He has His enemies in front of Him and all their armor is off and they're put to shame. You see, when we're in Christ, we have victory. We have forgiveness for our sins. And when we walk by faith, according to His Word, daily we can have power over the present deception of the devil and the power of sin in our life. We no longer have to be mastered by it. But to the degree you let up in the battle, to the degree you don't put on the full armor of God, or the whole armor of God, as this text says, to that degree, sin will have power in our lives. In our relationships will have conflict. And so it's my prayer that our eyes are looking at reality and that we are looking to our head Christ and that we're finding strength in His power and not our own.